those of us who are white have been formed to see ourselves as the center. There's no real distinction to us. We are the neutral background upon which others are placed and, and which their distinctiveness is then made visible. And, and this is really uh, kind of a heretical idea of what it means to be Christian, right? Where we have been through the grace of Jesus, uh, that into this family. And, and what makes us so incredibly unique is that we make up this family with other welcomed outsiders as well. And the center is always Christ. The center is always Jesus's body, which welcomes us as, as these former outsiders now sitting together at the same, at the same table. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about how we can respond to the brokenness in our own lives and in our society with our heads, hearts, and hands. And today I'm talking with David Swanson about his book, Rediscipling the White Church. It is a terrific book. I highly recommend it. And the great news is that we are able to host a giveaway for the book with two copies. So if you want to know any details about how to enter that giveaway, please go to the show notes. And now, here's my conversation with David Swanson. I'm here today with David Swanson. He's the pastor of New Community Covenant Church out in Chicago and author of a book called Rediscipling the White Church, From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Amy, Julia. I, I genuinely appreciate being here. Uh, well, I'm so glad you're here. And I think our listeners are really going to appreciate it too. And I wanted to start just by asking, we don't know each other. So I don't know your story other than what I've read in your book. And from what I gathered in reading it, it this book came out of years of personal experience, both in terms of your childhood experiences and also your current experiences as a pastor. Mm -hmm. So I thought that maybe um, a way for us to get to know you a little bit before we dig into the content of the book would be just to hear about some of the experiences from your childhood and your time as a pastor that led you to write it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a missionary kid, an MK for folks who know the <laughs> language. I uh, grew up in Venezuela and uh, in Ecuador. Hmm. My dad was a, uh, a missionary pilot. So we flew little airplanes into you know, hard to access areas. Mm. So um, from, you know, my earliest memories up until entering high school, uh, we, we lived in, in South America and then moved to Southern California. Um, so obviously I think in hindsight, that was significantly, you know, formational for me in ways that sure. I, I wasn't aware of at the time and probably I'm still discovering uh, at the very least appreciating diverse uh, cultural environments and expressions, but I think also to a certain extent, having a, an idea of what it feels like to, you know, be a little bit on the, on the outside, not totally understanding how things work, you know, sticking out a little bit. Yeah. Great experience, great years, loved, uh, loved my childhood. We moved to Southern California in the uh, early nineties. So this was OJ Simpson years. This was the Rod King right. Uh, beating years caught on videotape, which was a, a real kind of seminal moment. This was also a time in California where legislation was trying to be passed that would uh, bar the children of undocumented immigrants from attending public high school or uh, mm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, public schools. So this was sort of my introduction to you know conversations about race and ethnicity and, and racial mm. injustice in, in this country. 
I fast forward, I went to college in North Carolina, met my wife there, and then we moved uh, up to the, the Chicago suburbs for, for graduate school and started to get to know the city of Chicago um, through some friends who were from Chicago, from the south side of Chicago, which is the majority African-American side of our, of our city. And so, you know, pretty quickly was introduced to the legacy of racial segregation and you know, some of the history uh, of uh, Black people in particular moving to the North, uh, escaping, you know, Jim Crow violence in the American South and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And, and so um, when I entered ministry, pastoral ministry, it was in the suburbs in a majority white church. Again, so thankful for that experience. That's really where I received my call to ministry, but I always felt just a little bit out of place. Um, you know, the, the kind of mono ethnic nature of, of that suburban experience was something pretty foreign to me and kind of had this draw to the city. So again, fast forwarding, eventually was called by a church as an associate pastor into Chicago. And then that church sent a few of us to plant the church about 18 months later on the South side of the city, uh, where these friends were from. Uh, so we're in a majority African-American neighborhood. It's a historic neighborhood, Bronzeville for people who don't know is, I call it the, the Harlem of Chicago mm. it has a similar history and legacy and, and, and significance. And we started a multiracial church, uh, 11 years ago now. So for the past 11 years, I've been learning like crazy and, you know, just, reading, building relationships, uh, trying to understand some of the, the dynamics that have shaped our neighborhood. Um, so, so that has been, um, that's been my world for the past decade. And so the, the, the book, which I, I, we'll, we'll get to, felt like a bit of a shift to kind of get my head back in the right uh, church spaces. Yeah. Uh, just because I had been trying to, to learn so much in these multiracial and, and American spaces for, for quite a few years now. So tell me, when you say we planted this church, who's the we? Yeah, so this is one of the great gifts of of being at a church that had a vision to start new churches, is that it wasn't just me or just me and my family. There was a small group from the church, uh, some who already lived in the community, in the neighborhood. And then, you know, over the the year before we started, we we were able to invite others uh, to join us in that as well. So, you know, so when we started, we had maybe 20, 25 folks. both from the sending church and then from, from outside as well. And what is that? Can you just give us a little bit of a picture of your church now? And then again, we will actually move to the book, but um, I'd yeah. love to hear about 11 years later, where, where is this church? What are, what are you doing? What do you look like? Yeah. It, you know, we're recording this still very much in the middle of a pandemic. So asking a pastor what their church is like right now, it's kind of guess guesswork a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh we're roughly evenly uh, distributed between Asian American, African American, and, and white. Mm. And um, oh, so late 40s, early 50s, we meet in a gym uh, in the neighborhood where we've been for about seven years, um, and draw from a, a kind of a, a relatively small footprint on the south side. But Chicago is still a very segregated city, and so to be a multiracial church in the city usually means that you're, you know, you're welcoming people. From, from different areas in the city. So we have a, a deep commitment to our neighborhood, even as we uh, we understand that people are going to be coming from deep, uh, different neighborhoods to participate in the life of the church. Awesome. All right. And we'll, we'll get back to the idea of neighborhoods um, and participating. But um, before we go any further, I want to talk about just defining some terms. Uh, and part of 
why we need to do this is just because I'm not sure everyone will even be familiar with the word discipleship, but I mm-hmm. also even want to talk about what the white church means. But mm-hmm. I want to read one thing you've written as a little bit of a framework into this question. So early on in the book, and this comes up throughout the book, you write, the segregation within white Christianity is not fundamentally a diversity problem. Mm-hmm. It's a discipleship problem. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the, at least the thesis statements, right, for the book. Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is not a problem of diversity. It's a problem of discipleship. That's right. And so I obviously it's in the title. It's a thesis statement of the book. Like, I just want to make sure that we start with what does it mean to be discipled and what would it mean to be re-discipled? Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I... I think one of the things that's really helpful about the word disciple and discipleship for me is that it's not necessarily a Christian word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that becomes important in, in, in the book, but I am a Christian. And so I do think about it uh, in those ways, in the ways that Jesus seems to engage with this. So my kind of sh- short and simple definition of, of a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus in order to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus does in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of threefold movement of, of following becoming, you know, being, being transformed and then uh, participating uh, through the power of the spirit in what Jesus does in the world. And I think depending on your church tradition, you emphasize maybe one of those more than the other two. And I I hope we can hold those three, those three together, but at essence, that's what being a disciple is. And then so discipleship is, you know, inviting people to, to that, to follow, to become, and then to, to, to do. And so uh, let's pause for a minute and talk about what we mean when we say white church. Okay, so we're talking about discipleship and re-discipleship of the white church. So what's yeah. the white church and why does it need re-discipling? Yeah, that's, I'll try to keep my answer short here. Um, We've got plenty be, of time. You okay, okay, that's good. Um, so when I think about the white church, I'm thinking about churches that are demographically white, right? Mm-hmm. So the majority uh, makeup is white, but also, and this is a little bit more nuanced, culturally white. Um, so I, I'm a pastor of a multiracial church and sociologists of religion have shown repeatedly that many multiracial churches are in fact culturally white. They're not multi or intracultural. They, they mm-hmm. have a a culture in the congregation that defaults to the majority culture. So, so this is what I'm picturing. I'm picturing those, those kind of demographically and culturally white, uh, you know, congregations and ministry spaces. And the question of why need to be rediscipled. Um, okay. So there's a lot to say about that. Um, you know, and, and, and the question itself is worth kind of thinking about a little bit too, right? Because I think many of us who are white, we think, well, look, this, these are just, matters of, of personal or cultural uh, preference, or even just convenience, right? Like I go to a white church because this is a church that was close by, or I like the style of worship or the preaching connects with me or, you know, so on and so forth. And there's certainly a lot of truth to that. We need to look historically and understand that historically white churches in this country were racially exclusive, mm-hmm. um, you know, maintained a uh, a racial segregation, a, a part of what they understood it meant to be Christian people. Um, and, and this history gets played out in lots of ways. Um, there, there really is no uh, black church in this country. And I think by, by, by extension, you could think about other churches as well without that history of exclusion, you know, where, where, right. where black people were not welcomed into worship with, 
with 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 white Christians. So there's a there's a particular history there that uh, that we need to reckon really seriously with. But on a more kind of theological level, what what really keeps me awake at night is the the vision for the church that I read in the New Testament is one in which dividing lines and 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 and, and you know, barriers of hostility are broken down by the gospel. Mm-hmm. There's this assumption that for, for those who have given their lives to Jesus, they, they now participate like actively in an embodied, experienced way mm-hmm. with a surprising group of people, with a group of people who you, you wouldn't necessarily have done life with before, which maybe in one sense is an argument for the multiracial church, but again, I'd want to nuance that a little bit. What concerns me is that from, from what I can tell, the majority of white Christians don't necessarily even want that. Mm. It, this is not a desire of our hearts. We're not troubled by the segregated nature of our, of our congregations. We would, many of us kind of pay lip service to the diversity within the kingdom of God, right? And we would be thankful for that. But when it comes to a, um, a day-to-day basis, the, the segregated nature of our lives and our churches doesn't, doesn't particularly bother us. So we miss the, the particular history of, of exclusion and segregation. And then there's, been, there's something that's been discipling us outside of Jesus that has left us content with that segregated status mm-hmm. quo so that we don't gather with a, a sense of land. We don't, we don't kind of survey our, our, our relational networks and go, well, now why is it that as a Christian, my relationships more or less look the same as you know, my neighbors who are not Christian? Why is it that my discipleship to Jesus hasn't kind of upended or broken through some of the segregated patterns that are so normal in this country? So, so for me, those are, the, those are the kind of on-ramps to saying, I think there's some discipleship questions here that we want to raise uh, that would get at why it is that we have been so long content with this, this status of, of basically segregation. Yeah, I'd love to um, stay here for a minute. I'm thinking about you saying, like, for many white Christians, it's not something that actively bothers us that this is the case. And I would say even for those of us who it does bother, our first step out of it tends to be into what you described earlier as cultural whiteness, right? Like it might not be actually um, demographically Mm -hmm. only white people, but Mm -hmm. culturally. And then for many of us, that feels like, well, we solved the problem, right? Right. Like now I'm in a worshiping space and even in a um, corporate body with people who aren't from the same demographic group as me, mm-hmm. and therefore I'm done. Mm-hmm. Uh, when really what I've done is I've said, hey, guys, come be like me. Okay, right. let's keep going. Right. Um, and so I'd love to talk a little bit more about whiteness, because I do think it's really relevant here. And um, a couple of the things that really struck me in your writing about it I, so I've, I'll back up for a minute. I have thought a lot about what it means to be a white person, what mm-hmm. it means to be a white Christian, what it means to be in a white church, which is right. true of my um, current and actually my church experience overall. Um, and I've thought about the ways in which being considered, you know, white in America gives me these social advantages, whether mm. that has to do with assumptions about um 
what jobs I can do or, you know, access to schools or towns or spaces. Um, I've also thought about the ways that whiteness has isolated me from Mm -hmm. lots of other cultural Mm -hmm. um, experiences. And I have participated in worship in some true multicultural um, spaces and recognized how much I am losing out Mm. on as a result of not having those relationships and um, being really truly intimately connected with a wider understanding of uh, other Christians who come from different cultural backgrounds than mine. Um, And I know that I've participated in injustice as a result Mm -hmm. of my whiteness. So I know it's Mm -hmm. all a mix of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But you brought up a couple of the losses associated with whiteness that I haven't always considered. And one of the things you wrote, um, you said, okay, white people have been deceived and damaged by the narrative of racial difference. Mm. And it was when you were talking about the fact that we've lost any sense of cultural distinctiveness and just kind of been lumped together as white. And I'd love for you to just talk about that and why that's a loss, like the cultural losses that have been sustained by this insistence. Again, we might not consciously be thinking, I'm insisting on this, but um, this insistence on whiteness. Yeah. I, I think it was probably only... 10 or 12 years ago that I, I realized that the idea of human particularity is, is really one of the, the kind of ways that we need to understand uh, Jesus and mm. the incarnation, uh, that, that Jesus comes in a particular body uh, with a particular accent you know at a particular time mm-hmm. and, and, and the and the incarnation, of the Son of God speak into our own humanity uh, in, in a way that I think we see then carried all the way through Revelation, right? The, the, the vision of, a, of particular peoples with languages and, and traditions worshiping Jesus together. Um, none of that goes away, right? None of that goes away um, a- after Christ's return. I say that because th- this is one of the real devastating things that whiteness does, right? It mm-hmm. removes those particularities. So my ancestors, when they migrated to this country, they didn't come as white people. You know, they came as Swedish people or German people, right? right. They came with particular customs and histories. And very quickly, when you, when you come to this country, you realize that that dream that you came for is really only attainable by those who are white or who can be as proximate to whiteness as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and so to become white, then the, you know, the Svensons had to become the Swansons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and symbolic of all kinds of decisions that, that needed, to be, needed to be made. Um, and, and, and I don't know that we have grappled with that loss, Right. Uh, what what did it mean to, to make that exchange? What did it mean? And, and certainly some of that is conscious. Like I, I talk with with more recent immigrants and particularly children's of children of first generation immigrants who've had these conversations with their family. Why did you teach me the language? You know, mm-hmm. why why didn't we keep some of these traditions? And, and it's very clearly understood that we needed to set those aside in order to become as white as possible mm-hmm. so that I could give you as many of the benefits of this country as I possibly could, right? This is one of the great sacrifices that immigrant parents often, often make for their, for their children. 
the, the, the loss is what I'm not sure that, that we've grappled with so much. And so as white people, we have come to understand ourselves, not through God-given particularity of place, language, history, tradition, culture, ethnicity even, um, but rather through this sort of very vague label of being white. And, and even that we have trouble talking about, right? So that when we as white people come to these conversations, it's really difficult for us, right? We don't necessarily even have the language of, of who we are and what it means to be who we are as, as white people. So there's, again, there's so much that needs to be explored there, but at the very least, part of waking up to this conversation for white people means uh, accustoming ourselves to a bit of lament, to a bit of to a bit of grieving what was lost, what was left behind, in order to, a, to attain something else. I think yeah. So a couple of thoughts in response. Um, one is just I remember when I was in like middle school social studies, hearing, and this was probably relatively new. I'm guessing at the time, like you might have heard that America is a melting pot, mm. and really we're a salad bowl. <laughs> like um, <laughs> you know that sense of them trying to actually yep. hold yep. on to the idea that there are distinctive different pieces to this conglomeration of people. But when I was reading your book, I was thinking back to like, okay, but to what degree was I a part of a melting pot? Right. Whereas, you know, my Asian American friend was an Asian American. I did not even start thinking about myself as European American until recent years, right? right? And I certainly was never taught to do that growing up. And yet I also wonder about, so there are two things here. On the one hand, the losses that we who are white and don't understand ourselves as anything Uh else sustain. Uh But then I also think of the insistence that white Americans, perhaps, and I don't know if this is, can be said about America more broadly, the insistence that if you, I mean, there are African Americans who have been in this country by heritage longer than I have, who are still seen as being, Right. Like culturally yeah. distinct and coming originally from Africa. Mm-hmm. And of course, if I think about it, I'm like, and I culturally come from Europe. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder whether there's a kind of another loss in terms of I'm not willing or we are not willing to see you as a part of yeah. us. Right. Yeah. So it's like almost like it goes both ways in um, an unwillingness to acknowledge cultural distinctiveness, but also an unwillingness to say, and yet here we are all Americans together at the same time. No, I think that's so insightful. Um, I think a couple of things, we're we're recording this conversation a week and a day after the murders in Atlanta, right? And and this for many Asian American people is one of the defining characteristics of life in America is being the perpetual foreigner, the perpetual right. outsider, right? Um, I, I, I have friends whose families have been in this country for hundreds of years, you know, um, and, and yet still the question is where from uh, the assumption being it can't be, it can't be here. Right. Um, the other thing that, that your observation makes me think about is again, theologically, those of us who are Gentile, have been adopted into the family of God. You know, Paul's language is we've been grafted in, um, you know, fully welcomed, right? We're, we're, we're no longer in foreigners, but we are in a very real sense, a wealth outsider to yeah. the family of God. And, and so, you know, 
this is one of the other really damaging things that race does is that it, it causes us to forget that and it, and it, and it causes us to place ourselves at that center, right? Where you, you see the distinction of, for example, that, you know, the African-American person, the Asian American person, but on a, on a deep level, those of us who are white have been formed to see ourselves as the center. There's no real distinction to us. We are the neutral background upon mm-hmm. which others are placed and, and which their distinctiveness is then made visible. And, and this is really uh, kind of a heretical idea of what it means to be Christian, right? Where we have been through the grace of Jesus uh, into this family. And, and what makes us so incredibly unique is that we make up this family with other welcomed outsiders as well. And the center is always Christ. The center is always Jesus's body, which welcomes us as, as these former outsiders now sitting together at the same at the same table. That's the, that's the new Testament vision. And, and again, I think this is as Christians, we need to have a particular concern about these conversations because they do cut really uh, against some of our, you know, most important beliefs and convictions. Yeah, absolutely. I was struck also in reading, just in thinking again about whiteness as neutral or normal and not needing to be therefore explored, kind of the default option um, and what it means to begin to be conscious of that as a cultural experience, um, both for me teaching my children how to do that in a, in a way that is, again, like respectful. But yes, you're absolutely right. And what does it mean to hold our distinctiveness and yet also see ourselves as being together in the family of God and, as you said, welcome outsiders yeah. Um, another aspect of whiteness that you write about is the uh, up unrootedness, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that there's a transience, uh, that some of this has to do with affluence, which again, there's mm-hmm. some correlation between whiteness and affluence, even though they're obviously mm-hmm. not the exact same thing. But I'd love for you to talk about why it matters that we, especially people of faith, are committed to particular places mm-hmm. and what that has to do with discipleship with race and with justice also. Um, I, w- I would love to just hear you think about that out loud for a little bit. Yeah. Well, the, I think the first time I started thinking about this was um, I, I heard um, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil talk about kind of his, you know, through the, through the lens of biblical history of God sending people to, to really be formed by the world, by, by God's creation, that, that, that God's was was for uh, a, a people who would care for and be cared for by by God's good creation, um, and 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 the particularity that arises from this is good. It's 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 uh it's affirmed in in in, in our Christian scriptures. Um, and again, race race erases that. You know, race says um, those those particularities are not what is important about you. What's most important about you is this this construction and, and then these labels that we can now place on you, which will then put you on a particular hierarchy. Um, and so the, 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 the kind of haunting question for me is, does the creation, does God's good creation still retain that formational you know, influence and power? And I, I think the answer is yes. So if, if one of the things that race does is to kind of detach us from place, right. To say like where I come from, isn't all that important. What's most important is this, this thing that's been, been placed on me that allows some of us the privilege of mobility, the privilege of moving, you know, from this place for college, then to this place for graduate school, then to this place for the first job, then to this place for a yeah. better job, then to this place because it has a, you know, the better school districts and so on. 
and you know, conversely, uh, causes someone else to be stuck in, a, in an oppressive place because they don't have that same same mobility. Um, you know, then 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 what would it look like for us to say actually God's creation is still good and God's creation can still be forming people and, and communities of people who will commit being present to that place together, who will be formed by that place together, who will, who will commit to kind of placing ourselves in the stream of what God has been doing in that place for generations be, before us, right? I think there's so much that can be explored there. I don't think any of this, you know, completely subverts the power of race. I think we're waiting until Jesus comes back for that. But I do re- remain pretty hopeful about what it looks like for communities of people to, to you know, to, to start to see their place with different eyes, to start to see the way that it can actually be shaping and forming uh, and curating a, a people together so that those welcomed outsiders centered on Jesus are beginning to develop with some common rhythms of life together and even some common culture together. So what would you say when it comes to place? I'm thinking about where I live, which is Western Connecticut, small town, the town and for some reasons of injustice, as well as some reasons of demography is vastly majority white. So what does it mean? How does this apply, right? In my context, is it, you know what? Yes, just be rooted in your place and learn the history and be, I mean, for example, I know that in town, there was a group of abolitionists who were run out of town in the 1840s, you know, mm-hmm. I, so I do know a little bit of that history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have become more connected to some of the cities that are nearby. And and yet I do, it, it's something I and my husband wrestle with living in a small white town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, wait, mm-hmm. should we be committed to this place? Or mm-hmm. does following Jesus mean going to a place that has more actual diversity? So I'm curious mm-hmm. how you would answer that. Yep. I think it's a super important question. I start with that question by thinking about the history. Uh, I, I, I sort of imagine, you know, what, what would it look like if every town like yours, in that town, there was a church that was known for being the keeper of the memory in that, in that town. Like if, if needed to know what had happened, you would go talk to the Christians at that church, because Mm -hmm. these were a group of people who took seriously God's command to remember, God's repeated command to remember, to not forget, right? And that command involves, particularly in the Old Testament, two things. You you remember what God has done, but you also remember where you've messed up. Don't forget that stuff either, right? Because we're not going to repeat that that again. Um, to, To circle back to whiteness for a second, I, I'm convinced that one of the attributes of whiteness is forgetfulness, that the, the, the need to leave those things behind generations back breeds a kind of forgetfulness, which then breeds a kind of a, a sense of innocence, right? If, if we forget the sort of like ugly and, and unjust history that led to this point, then we can see ourselves as being innocent, right? Like I never owned any slaves, right? I don't have a racist bone in my body, like the kinds of things that we hear, right? There's this sense of innocence that again, as Christians ought to be very troubling to us because we know we, we're all sinful, all profoundly in need of the of, of Jesus. So, you know, going back to the, this, to this particular town, w- what is the history that led this town to becoming mostly white? Again, the assumption for most white people as well is it's the 
an accident of totally true. Usually there's, you know, there's some more pointed history behind it. Like, like you've mentioned, I, I was uh, on the West coast for years with some pastors about some of these things. And, and they said, well, this is not really an issue for us because our city is mostly white. And, you know, we appreciate what you're talking about. So I was going to talk to him again the next morning. So I, like that night, I just Googled a little bit about their city. and it took 10 minutes, you know, it was not, it was not real hard. And there's still, there's still laws on the books in their city and certain neighborhoods where black people are not allowed to buy, you know, purchase homes in, in that. Wow. Now, yeah. clearly on a federal level, that's legal and that wouldn't, but it's still on the books. It still yeah. exists, yeah. right? Like there was, there were forces of policy that led to uh, the way their city happens to, to look right now, right? Um, yeah. But we forget those things. We forget those, those, those histories. And so I want to call Christians to saying, let's actually, as we, as we look at our majority white spaces, let's be the ones who understand why they are the way that they are. So that's one. Sorry, I'm, this is a really long answer to your question. No, no it's uh, no, Number two Wait, would- so important. Okay, okay. Number two then would be that in my experience, um, spaces are generally more diverse than white people think they are. Um, I, I've, I've had this experience so many times where people say, you know, my, my, my town, my suburb is totally white. And I'll start asking questions like, well, who, you know, who serves the food at the restaurants that, that, that you go to, right? Um, or who's in, in more rural setting, who's, who's, who's um, you know, who's taking care of the fields, you know, the agriculture nearby. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that's a piece to lean into a little bit as well. Um, which isn't well, and I have one friend to that point um, who lives, uh, you know, half an hour away, but she has said to me, you know, she's like, yeah, it's just, it's not as hard as white people think it is <laughs> to mm -hmm. make black friends. Like, mm -hmm. you, I mean, in the sense that, yeah, sure. I live two towns over. That is true. I don't live two states over, you know, <laughs> and we both have children who go to school. We both have, I mean, uh -huh, there are things uh -huh. that we um, share in common and we can build relationships um, through those things. And sure, it's a little more effort to decide right, right, to go right. to the dance class in the town where maybe, I don't know, but sure. yes, I do think um, to your point about the Googling and it took 10 minutes and there is a willful ignorance. And I think what you were saying about just the um, forgetfulness, I wonder how much the transience has to do with that yeah. as well. Yeah. Because if my family had been in this town for that mm -hmm. many years, you know, then there is more likely to actually be a memory much and much more so a sense of responsibility or accountability to that memory than yeah. there is when I come into a town and I'm like, well, I wasn't here. Yeah. So I think those things exactly. are all related to each other. It's really interesting. Well, I want to move to the idea of relationships, actually, because uh, you end your book with a chapter about cross-racial relationships, friendships, and you also very intentionally do not start there. Right. So I'd love to ask you to explain why problems arise when we think that relationships are the key to undoing segregation in most of our you know, American churches and most of our American culture too. Right, 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 right. Certainly not just limited to, to our churches. Um, yeah, so so there's uh, a, a couple of scholars, uh, Michael Anderson and Christian Smith, who years ago identified these kind of three, I call them instincts in white Christian space, relationalism, individualism, and anti-structuralism. And mm -hmm. we don't need to go into all of those, but yeah. it, it's important to notice that, that these are sort of the tools that we grasp for when we are confronted with injustice and racial injustice in particular. 
And so what this means is that, that white people, uh, culturally, we've been formed when we think, okay, we want to do something about racism or racial segregation. We immediately go to, so we need to start building friendships. We need to start building relationships. We're, we are kind of formed in individualism. So I as an individual need to make yeah. friends, relationalism right. with another individual. And there's nothing wrong with making friends. I mean, my life is so much richer because of the diversity of friendships that I know. What, what we miss though, is that I can have an incredibly diverse friendship network and have done absolutely nothing to disturb the underlying material sources of injustice that are privileging me while simultaneously, you know, making my new friends' lives harder. And, and so the, you know, to, to kind of harken back to something you talked about earlier, the churches that can maintain the kind of white culture, uh, it's, it's easy to, to, not easy, but you can have a multiracial space that really is mostly for white people because it's mostly about the relationships. It's not actually doing anything to, to address those material sources of injustice. So that's the, that's the, that was the concern. That's why I did leave it to the last and even debated including it at all uh, because my fear was that we would just grab onto that. Oh, okay, so we just need to make, to make friends. And yet I did feel like I needed to include it because as a Christian, I don't know how we think about any of outside of you know, relationships. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you that there's a, um, a sense of we can let ourselves, I guess, off the hook too easily if we're just thinking mm-hmm. about relationships. But we also, and even back to what you were saying about particularity, particular relationships also can um, connect our eyes and our hearts um, to real people and real needs and real at what you talked about mutuality. So it's not just me being aware of the needs of my neighbors who are black and brown, but also Mm -hmm. me being a recipient of the gifts of those individuals and those communities. Um, So I think the mutuality piece is really important too. It also strikes me that I think the sociology definition of a multi-ethnic church is what, 80% white? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so which is still, I'm always like, that's a lot of white people. Like, it's a low I, bar. I, it's a low bar. <laughs> yeah, it's a low bar. And so no wonder it feels white. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, and, and I understand. I mean, I'm sure there are reasons why they chose that number in terms of studying it. But I also think um, that there is some work to be done if we're going to even try to call mm-hmm. something multi-ethnic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in mm-hmm. our definition of it. That's yeah. kind of a side point. But um, I would love to talk a little bit about the ways in which churches can actually begin this process mm. of rediscipleship. You give lots of practices in the book and we don't have time to talk them all through. And hopefully this will prompt some people to actually go buy the book and read and and think about what would it mean to do this. But, you know, if you've got a church that's kind of coming to you and saying, hey, we want to do this, but we are new to the concept, like we're just starting out, we're certainly not going to be multi-ethnic anytime soon, you know, um, what would that look like? What would the process of beginning rediscipling look like for um, a church like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that would be just, just what you said there would be great. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I I think historically majority white churches have said, this isn't for us, right? The work of the ministry of racial reconciliation isn't for us because we're all white or our town is all white. That's for a church that's in the city or that's for, you know what I mean? Someone who's in a more diverse environment, that's for you. And so 
my, my attempt here is to flip that and say, actually, no, this really is for, for you. This is, mm-hmm. this is our responsibility. And those of us who are in majority white settings have a particular responsibility. Um, and we see that more clearly once we use the lens of discipleship, right? Rather than saying, this is all about pursuing diversity. Because if it's all about pursuing diversity, we've automatically written off a vast majority of the American church and told them, you don't have a role to play in this. Yeah. And that, that's all, that's completely backwards. So I would really affirm that, like like that church that's say it's a, a mostly white church. I say this is great. You actually want to do something about this? Okay, don't don't try to start recruiting people of color right away. That's not your goal. Your right. goal is to ask why is it that we've been content with this racial status quo for so long? Let let's do some some introspect introspection. And now that we're developing a heart for racial reconciliation or racial justice, let's ask ourselves, what was it that left us to be content with with the other for for Mm -hmm. so long? This is a a posture of confession, right? It's saying, how have we been complicit in in sin? How have we, uh, by omission or commission, participated in sinful structures and decisions that have segregated us and damaged sisters and brothers in Christ? I think that's an important posture. But then what I want to encourage churches to, to, to do is not to throw everything out, to not completely reinvent the wheel, but to trust that actually God has given us the gifts that we need to begin doing this right now, that we don't have to start a racial justice ministry. We don't have to start recruiting lots of people of color, that, right. that if the goal is to is, is discipleship, then let's let's look around and find out what's what's discipling us right now. What are our discipleship practices right now? For me, I'm particularly interested in corporate discipleship and how we're being formed together. I think that's really important for those of us steeped in individualism. But every single Sunday, particularly in non-COVID times, when our churches gather, there are all kinds of practices that we are engaging in together, whether it be you know, Holy Communion, uh, the, you know, musical worship, maybe there's service projects that we're engaging in, our children are being discipled. Once our, we, we kind of start looking around at what we're already doing, then I think we can start to ask, okay, so what would need to be changed? What would need to be added? What would need to be edited a little bit so that these practices simply take on more of their God-given power? So that in addition to discipling us in these ways, they're now discipling us deeper into a solidarity with the whole body of Christ. So that our, so that our, our hearts and our imagination our assumptions are actually being transformed through these practices so that over time we're finding that we imagine ourselves having more in common with Christians of color than with white people who don't share our faith. Right. Right. We actually believe and live into desire that kind of common life together, even if, uh, we don't get to experience that as much as we would desire to because of the segregated nature of, of American life. Now, right. maybe over time, the Holy Spirit leads that church to say, we do need to become multiracial, right? Like the discipleship stuff is happening. Our hearts are being changed. We are now yeah. much more hospitable to genuine expressions of, of intercultural ministry and not just assimilation. So that could be that could be a possibility at some point down the road. But for me, the good news is we can all jump into this right now. Well, that's, it reminds me, um, I have a friend named David Bailey, who's been on the podcast mm-hmm. a couple of times, and he uh, runs a ministry called Erebon. And he says, you know, not all um, 
churches are called to be diverse communities, but we are all called to be reconciling communities. And I think that your book speaks to that as well. Just that sense of what does it mean to truly as a body be connected to the body of Christ? And that might not show up in the pews every single Sunday. And yet there are many, many things we can be doing to be shaping ourselves, whether it's a pastor who is, you know, reading a quotation from mm-hmm. a theologian of color, mm-hmm. whether it is inviting, as you say, not on Martin Luther King Day, but inviting right, right. a pastor of color, which actually it's really interesting. I'm thinking about our own church. I'm in, the, as I said, this kind of white country church, um, but our pastor has relationships with mm-hmm. many other pastors who are people of color. And yeah. so we, we have, as a church, essentially formed a relationship with one other pastor who comes up a couple times a year and preaches. Yeah. And he is just this generous, gracious, wonderful man, comes up with his family and stands in front of the church. So first of all, he's in a position of authority, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he stands in front of the church and he says, hello, cousins, with mm-hmm. his arms outstretched. Mm-hmm. And it's a really beautiful yep. gesture that yep. I, what's really interesting is, so then he had friends who came a couple of times um, to our church. And one of them, who actually is uh, from a Native American background, mm-hmm. ended up staying, becoming a member, and is now the associate pastor at our church. Mm-hmm. So we now have a woman from a Native American who grew up on a Native American reservation who is our associate pastor. She is in leadership yeah. at our yeah. church yeah. as a result of this invitation essentially. I so that. I do think there's more that God can do with these yes. little yes. acts of. And yes, it's an act of racial justice, but it was as much an act of, as you use the word solidarity yeah. among the body of Christ that, that led to that. And it's right. um, it's been pretty beautiful to see that, even if it's just these little um, small ways for us to get more connected outside of mm-hmm. our little predominantly white town um, and community. And we shouldn't underestimate those things. We shouldn't mm-hmm. underestimate those, those, those small steps because small steps lead to bigger steps, lead to bigger steps, right? You know, five years from now, the thing that seemed impossible now seems normal. Uh, but that never happens if we don't start taking those, those, those smaller steps. And so I, yeah, I, I didn't, I really didn't want to write a book that just made people tired to read it. Cause I can't, I just, <laughs> I can't do those books, you know, where it's like, oh man, I got to change my whole ministry to, right. you know, um, I really believe that God has given the church what we need. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it calls for some reimagination. It calls for a posture of, of humility. There's some lament here. This is, mm-hmm. this is difficult work, right? But the gifts are there. I'm convinced of that. The gifts are there both in the local church. And then like to your example, in the, in the wider body of Christ, if we simply open ourselves up to them. Well, and the last thing I'll say um, is that, and the gifts are gifts, right? I mean, they're actually beautiful. (laughs) They are enriching and they are life-giving. And they are, I mean, again, I go back to um, participating in worship in a truly multicultural experience um, now, probably 10 years ago, but I just was like, oh, this is giving me a glimpse Mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God that I have not had before. And I carry that to this day as just something that I long for as much as I love worshiping with my, you know, brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning. So I think that's the other thing is just that we are not doing this for the Mm -mm. sake of 
suffering or sacrifice, no. even though there may be what feels like sacrifice along the way. We are doing this for the sake of the beauty of justice and yeah. of solidarity and of being uh, united with one another um, in, under the loving, gracious work yes. of Jesus. So yeah. that's something. I mean, that's that's what makes this this Christian, right? I mean, yeah. I, I have friends who are not Christian who do racial justice work. I love I love partnering them, love working with them. Um, what what ought to make our participation in that distinct is that we expect there to be death. We expect that at times this kind of thing will feel like death, mm -hmm. but there will always, always be resurrection on the other side of that. Like it is genuinely good. I, I, I you know, it, it's hard, it's difficult, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, right? Like one, once, the more you taste and see of the kingdom of God, of uh, the, the body of Christ, you don't want to go back. Right, amen. Uh, well, David, thank you. Thank you for these thoughts. Thank you for this book. Um, and thank you for the, just the, you know, um, gracious and gentle approach that you take to giving us some of those um, small steps that can honestly, nevertheless, uh, result in large change, I think, um, and transformation. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. Again, I want to remind you that we are hosting a giveaway of David's book. So take a look at the show notes, find out how you can enter. There is so much in the book that we didn't get to cover today. So I highly recommend checking it out. I also want to thank our co-host, Breaking Ground. If you want more podcasts and articles and videos uh, about a Christian from a Christian perspective about how to think about the past and understand the present and explore redemptive possibilities for the future, visit breakingground.us. I also want to say thank you, as always, to Jake Hansen for editing the podcast and to Amber Berry for all the work she does as my social media coordinator. And finally, to you, the listener, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing the podcast. Thanks for your feedback about how it's been going for you. And as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear. Mm -hmm.